You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Um, okay, so today we are going to take another step uh, into chapter 6 of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, let me just remind you as we're, we're jumping back into uh, uh, to that section of the scriptures, what, what Jesus is doing here. His main point in the first half of Matthew chapter 6 is found in verse 1 of Matthew 6. So let me read this again for you. Here, here's the main point that Jesus is after. This is the main point. This is, this is what he is wanting to make sure that we're seeing. Verse 1 of Matthew 6, Beware of practicing your righteousness. Um, that's code word for your good works, that the good things you're doing, the religious sort of things that you're doing. Be, be careful of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus' point in, in Matthew 6, 1, he's looking at us and he's trying to convey to us that motives matter. Not just what you do, but why you do what you do. Motives matter. And it's not just that motives matter, it's that motives matter most. That's his point in the first half of Matthew chapter 6. Motives matter most. Now, Jesus is addressing the religious leaders in Matthew 6, and they were the good guys, right? They're the Pharisees, and they were all about the externals. They were all about doing good things out there. And listen, they were the good guys, and they were doing a lot of good things. And from a distance, all of their, their doing just looks so great. I mean, from a distance, you would think they are serious about God, that they love God, that they are all about God. From a distance, their doing look great. But Jesus doesn't just look at a distance. He gets up close, so close that he sees through our doing and all the way into our hearts. He sees all the way behind our doing to the why to the motive, to the reason for our doing. And here's what he sees when he looks at the Pharisees. He sees that their right outward obedience had been perverted by wrong inner motivations. They were doing the right things, but for all the wrong reasons. And right things for the wrong reasons equal wrong in God's economy. Right things, wrong reasons still make those actions dead wrong. God wasn't the point of their obedience. I mean, this is what he's showing us in Matthew 6. God, they wanted nothing to do with God. God wasn't the point of their obedience. Human applause was the point of their obedience. So then in in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus lays out three illustrations to drive that point home. The the first is on giving. This is in verses 2 through 4. And here's what Jesus is showing us in those verses. That they weren't giving to help the poor. They were giving to purchase a reputation as those who help the poor. That's why they were giving. Right action, but but wrong motivation. And then he uses prayer in in verses 5 through 15. They're praying, this is the point Jesus is making, they're praying wasn't for the presence of God. It wasn't for God at all. It was for the applause of people. They wanted a reputation of those, as those who were serious about God, and in particular, serious about prayer. That's why they were praying. And then in verses 16 through 18, you've got our topic for the day, fasting. He introduces fasting and how they were doing this re- very religious, spiritual thing, fasting, a good thing, but for all the wrong reasons. Now, here's what I want to do today. Fasting is such an underdeveloped idea in our 21st century culture 
that I actually want to skip forward three chapters in the Bible to Matthew chapter 9. Uh, that Matthew chapter 9, it probably, it's this one little section. It's probably the most important little section on fasting in the New Testament. So I, I want to go there, and I just want to spend a morning thinking through this word fasting. What is it? Why is it? like When the Bible is talking about fasting, what, what is it getting at? So, so I want to spend a morning with you developing this idea of fasting. Now, as you're turning to Matthew chapter 9, let me just prime the pump with a few thoughts about fasting. Uh, throughout the history of God's people, this is both Old Testament, New Testament, and church history. So, so throughout the history of God's people, fasting has had a privileged place among God's people. So it's had a very privileged place, but you and I are living in a day and an age, right now, 21st century America, we're living in a day and an age where fasting is almost entirely neglected. Uh, Richard Foster, in his book, Celebration of Discipline, says this about fasting. He says, in a culture where the landscape is dotted with shrines to the golden arches, that's painful, in a culture where the landscape is dotted with shrines to the golden arches, and an assortment of pizza temples. Fasting seems out of place. It seems out of step with the times. In fact, fasting has been in general disrepute both in and outside the church for many years. For example, in my research, I could not find a single book published on the subject of Christian fasting from 1861 to 1954, a period of nearly 100 years. That's how neglected fasting is in our current day and age. Now, as a result of that, my assumption is that for many in the room, you have never heard a sermon on fasting. It's one of the reasons I just want to take a morning to do that. My assumption is that we haven't uh, been taught these things or, or kind of thought this word through and this idea through. But even on a more personal level, when you think about Matthew 6, Jesus doesn't say, if you fast, if you get around to fasting, he says, when you fast, right? So it's not an if, but a when. He doesn't command it, but Jesus does assume it. So I, I think it's helpful for us to take a look at our own lives for a moment and, and just ask ourselves the question, when's the last time you have fasted? When's the last time that you've done that? Is fasting a regular or neglected practice in your life? regular or neglected? Uh, when is the last time you have forfeited food for the sake of feasting on Jesus? Not just forfeited food for a diet, but, but for the sake of feasting on Jesus. And, and just as an aside, I, I think it's probably safe to assume we all need help in this area. I am not a tour guide showing you all the marks and all the, the places you need to see in this. I am a fellow traveler asking God for help. So with that said, I want to think this through with you. I want to look at this text in Matthew 9 with three questions. What is fasting? Why do we fast? And how does Jesus renew fasting? What, why, and then how does Jesus renew fasting? So first, what is fasting? Look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to Jesus saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but you and your disciples, you, you don't fast? Why is that? Now, the, the word fast shows up in verse 14 two times. So we need to do some work on what is that word? What, what does the Bible mean uh, when it says uh, fast? So here's just a working definition to, to get us on the same page. Fasting is foregoing food 
Now, it can be more broadly applied. So, so think of any God's gifts that you enjoy often, and they're a good gift from God. So it could be TV, it could be social media, it could be a hobby. So, so it's, it, it's primarily got to do with food in the Bible, but it could be applied more broadly. Fasting is forgoing food for the sake of some spiritual purpose. So, so normally when, when fasting is talked about in the scriptures, it means abstaining from everything but water. So water, it's a water-only diet for a prolonged period of time. And that prolonged period of time could be a night, it could be a day, it could be three days, it could be seven days, it could be 14 days, it could be 21 days. Uh, in the case of Jesus in Matthew 4, it was 40 days, right? This is fasting in, in the scriptures. Now in the Old Testament, fasting is mandated in only one place. And you find that in the book of Leviticus on the Day of Atonement. This was the one time per year when the people of God would gather and they would make a sacrifice for their sins. So it was that sort of communal day and a fast would be associated with that. So now think about what, what fasting in light of that is an expression of. And on that day of atonement when they're fasting, fasting was an expression of really two things. One is of their present brokenness, of, of sin in their life and all those fleshly desires that, that sin produces in us. So it was in one sense an expression of their present brokenness. On the other hand, it, it was an expression, secondly it was an expression of their belief and longing for future redemption. For that day when, when God would send a perfect sacrificial lamb who would forever remove their sin from them. So, so at its biblical origins, all the way back into Leviticus, at its biblical origins, fasting was an expression of desperation, of, of a longing for a redeemer, namely Jesus. It was a longing for, for a solution to humanity's unfixable problem with sin. Fasting arises and bubbles up out of that. Now, as the history of, of Israel progressed in the, in the Old Testament, there were several fasts that were added. By the time you get to the New Testament, fasting was seen as a normal part of Jewish life. If you were about you, fasting was a part of what you did. So as a, for instance, the Pharisees in the first century, um, they would fast twice a week two 24-hour periods a week. On Monday and Thursday, they would fast. Now, in some ways, this explains, that context explains why Jesus is asked the question in verse 14. Uh, the Pharisees are fasting. John's disciples are fasting. It seems like everyone is fasting but Jesus and his disciples. So, so John's disciples come to Jesus and ask why. Why are we all fasting but you're not? Please explain this to us. And Jesus responds to them with a question of his own. In verse 15, Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? That's Jesus' answer to why his disciples at this point in time are not fasting. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? So think of the imagery here. Jesus is, is, is drawing from some Old Testament imagery. He, he's, he's telling the people of Israel that, that I am here, the groom. Jesus, I, I am here. Your, your groom has come. Now, now that, again, is pulling from that Old Testament imagery of God being the groom and the people of God being the bride. You see this throughout the Old Testament. Here's an example of it in Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. He's drawing on that imagery, and Jesus is saying, your groom, your grace giver, your redeemer, the one you've been waiting for, he's come. Your, your groom has come, so this is a time to celebrate. 
This moment in history should be a time for all of my followers to celebrate. Now is the time to throw the party, to kill the fattened calf. It's the time to do that. This is Jesus' point. But fasting, on the other hand, is not connected to celebration. Fasting is connected to grief. It's connected to mourning. Fasting is an expression of our brokenness and desperation. Fasting is an expression of some deeply longed-for blessing. See, if, if you want to think the context for a fast, think funeral. That's, that's the sort of biblical context for a fast. But Jesus is saying, right now, how could we even think about fasting? We're not at a funeral. We're at a wedding. The, 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 the groom has come. The one you've been dreaming of, longing for, waiting on, hoping for, he's here. So it's impossible for my disciples to fast. Uh, rather than, rather than, than fasting, this is the time to celebrate. We're at the wedding. That's his response to the, to the why aren't you fasting moment. Now, that then leads to the question, why do we fast? Why, why should we fast? Now, it also makes us ask the question, why shouldn't we? And the Bible has a lot to say about why we shouldn't fast. We don't fast for the eyes of other people. That's Matthew chapter 6. Right? That's Jesus' point. Motives matter in fasting. And if we're fasting, fasting for the applause of people, that's wrong. We shouldn't fast in that way to, to gain the admir, admiration and the approval of others. Uh, the Bible is, is clear that, that Christian fasting is, is not so that we can get on some sort of a new diet or weight loss program. That's not the reason that we fast. Uh, the Bible is clear that we don't fast to manipulate God. God, I do this, therefore you are now in my debt to do that. Uh, we don't fast to manipulate God, we fast to get more of God. So, so why should we fast? There's a lot that the Bible says about it, but let me just give you four reasons uh, this morning. Why fast here are four reasons. Reason number one, fasting reveals what controls us. W what controls us. Fasting has a way of showing us what's in us and what's controlling us. Uh, listen to Richard Foster again in his book, Celebration of Discipline, describe this. He says, more than any other single discipline, fasting reveals what controls us. This is a wonderful benefit to, the, to a true disciple who longs to be transformed into the image of Jesus. Then listen to this statement. He says, we cover up what is inside us with food and other good things, but in fasting, these things surface. Now, here's what is true about you. It's true about me. It's really true about every human being is we all self-medicate. We all look to things, and, and these things are good things many of them. Uh, we look to food. We look to the next purchase. We look to another hour of TV. We look to social media, checking that Facebook feed for the 900th time. Uh, we look to the next hobby. Uh, we look to many of God's goods, uh, good gifts, but we're looking to those things to ease our discomforts, uh, to, to quiet those grumblings and those discontentments that live deep within our heart. We all do that. We all medicate in this way. So just think about food as a for instance of this. Food is an amazing thing. Um, oftentimes I think of food as like uh, putting any, like a, a lid over our emotions. So like we feel all of these sort of things and food has a way of sliding a lid over those things so, so that it makes it much harder for all of those things that we're feeling to bust out and up and, and come out into our life. 
Uh, food does that. So just think about your own life. Um, or I can think about mine. When I'm sad or when I'm mad or when I'm frustrated or when I'm experiencing a lot of discontent, do you know what eases those feelings? A taco. <laughs> Isn't that amazing that food does that? Like you, you can eat and you instantly just kind of feel better. Like, the, like those discontentments just have a way of being pushed down to where you just don't have to deal with them now. Those frustrations, just food has a way of keeping a lid over those so that you actually don't experience them. But when you take food away, your interior world breaks through the surface in unavoidable ways. In this way, fasting exposes both what we're medicating, the sort of fears, worries, anxieties, all of those things down there. It has a way of exposing both what we're medicating and what we're medicating with. Food, TV, social media, hobby, just fill in the blank. Fasting has a way of exposing both of those. So Richard Foster goes on to say, if pride controls us, it will be revealed almost immediately. Anger, bitterness, jealousy, strife, fear, if they are within us, they will surface during fasting. At first, we'll rationalize that our anger is due to our hunger. We even have a word for that, don't we? Hangry. You know it, right? That, 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 is, that is a way of saying, you know what the real problem is? I just haven't eaten. But fasting shows us the problem is not food. The problem is anger in us. And food just is this emotional covering that when you take it away, now that anger comes right up and out of us. At first, we'll rationalize that our anger is due to our hunger. Then we will know that we are angry because the spirit of anger is within us. We can rejoice in this knowledge because we know that healing is available through the power of Jesus. Fasting reveals what controls us, what we're enslaved to, what, what, we, what we're depending on, what we're medicating with. Secondly, fasting reminds us of what sustains us. Fasting reminds us of what sustains us, what we actually need and really need in life. Fasting is not, it's not just about foregoing food. Fasting is primarily about feasting on God. See, in this way, fasting reminds us of, of Matthew 4.4, that, that Matthew 4.4 is true and right and real. Uh, do you remember this in, in Matthew 4.4 where Jesus says, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That isn't just a cute saying in the Bible. That is, that is reality in the Bible. That, that we, we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. There's this scene in John chapter 4 where Jesus is weary, he's tired, he hadn't eaten all day, and his disciples bring Jesus food, just assuming he is about to devour that food, thinking he's going to be starving to death. But Jesus responds in John 4, verse 32, by saying, I have food to eat that you do not know about. In verse 34, he goes on to say, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Isn't that amazing? Fasting in this way reminds us that the greatest feast in our life is our feast on Jesus, not food. That, that Jesus is the most nourishing meal that, that our hearts can possibly consume. I mean, think about in, in, in the Gospel of John, Jesus calls himself the bread of life. Now, now, that's not, again, that's not a clever metaphor. That, that is rock-solid reality. And fasting has this way of reminding our souls that we can do without food, but we'll die forever without Jesus. Fasting reminds us of that. And who in this room doesn't need to be reminded of that? 
Our hearts just have a way of drifting, thinking that we can do without Jesus and just we'll be okay. And no, no, it reminds us that the meal we need most is Jesus. We can do without food, but we'll die forever without him. It reminds us of what sustains us. Reason number three for fasting. It opens our heart to God. Throughout Christian history, fasting has been viewed as one of the best ways to get a sense of God's direction in your life, to get the wisdom and discernment you need for life. Most of our life is not lived in biblical commands. You're not going to find, in in most moments of your life, you're not going to go to the Bible and find a, oh, the Bible just says do this. Most of our life is lived in the area of wisdom. And and where do we go when we need wisdom from God? Fasting is one of those places. It's one of those places that opens our our heart and our ears to hear from God. Listen to Donald Whitney in his book on spiritual disciplines describe this. He says it this way. One of the ways the Holy Spirit prompts us to fast is through a need in our lives. If you need stronger prayer about a matter, that's an invitation from the Lord to fast. If you need God's guidance in an issue in your life, that's an encouragement to fast. If you need deliverance or protection, that's a time to fast. All of those are invitations from God to fast. So many of us in the room this morning, we have brought in here a need, a need for discernment, a need for wisdom. Should we take this job or not? Should, should, uh, where should I point my disciple-making energy? Here or there. These people or those people, that person or this person. Where am I going to give my life out in sacrificial moments of service? Where am I going to do that? What would, I've got a wayward child, what, what, what would God want me to do today to be salt and light in his or her life? We all bring in these areas of need, of wisdom, of discernment, and fasting is one way where we can position ourselves before God to hear from him. It's been viewed in church history as one of the primary ways that we can seek wisdom and the voice of God in our life. It opens our heart to God. And and reason number four takes us right back into Matthew chapter 9. And this is the main thing I would want to say about fasting. Why do we fast? Because fasting expresses our longing for Jesus. Fasting expresses our longing for Jesus. So in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is asked the question in verse 14, Everyone else is fasting. Why aren't you and your disciples fasting? What what is going on here? And and then he responds in verse 15. And Jesus said to them, he asked the question, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? So Jesus' point is the groom is here. So that's why they're not fasting. This is the time to celebrate, not mourn. But he goes on to say this, but the days will come when the bridegroom, when Jesus is taken away from them. Jesus is is anticipating, he's looking forward uh, toward his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. He's anticipating that time that we live in now, but between the the, the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. He's looking forward to that time, and he's saying the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away. And then when the bridegroom is taken away, that, that time that you and I live in, in between the first and second coming of Jesus, and then they will fast. So he's saying that the groom is here. Like I am physically walking among my disciples. This is a wedding party. So there's no fasting now. But but soon the groom will be taken away. The groom is going to go. And when I go, then fasting will recommence for my people. That's Jesus' point. Now, I want you to notice what Jesus is doing with fasting here. 
what he connects fasting to. Jesus connects fasting to a longing for his return. Fasting on one side, a longing for the return of Jesus on the other. These two are deeply and intimately connected. Jesus connects fasting to a longing for his return. Listen to how one author says it. Fasting is a physical expression of heart hunger for the coming of Jesus. Yes to that. Fasting is a physical expression of heart hunger for the coming of Jesus. Christian fasting is an expression that our groom was here. He lived for us. He died for us. He he rose from the dead for us. He ascended on our behalf to the right hand of God the Father. He was here, but now he isn't here. And fasting is this deep expression of our longing for King Jesus to come back for his bride. For, for King Jesus to come back and set the world aright. It, fasting, Christian fa- this is what makes fasting distinctly Christian. It's what separates it from a Muslim fasting, from this person fasting. What makes fasting distinctively Christian is, is down underneath a Christian fasting is a heart saying, Jesus, come back. I, I, want, I long for your return. That, that, that is what makes fasting distinctively Christian. So in this way, fasting is A. It's not the only, but it is, it, it is one of the central sort of distinguishing marks of a person who's truly longing for Jesus. To the point where I think it's fair to say, if you want to measure how much am I longing for the return of Jesus, Jesus is saying, well, take a look at your fasting. Take a look at the presence of fasting in your life or the absence of fasting. There's your measurement for the, for, for, for the longing you have in your heart for my return. Now, it's interesting. Jesus never commands fasting in the New Testament. He assumes it, but, but never commands it. And, and I just anticipate that question of like, Jesus, why is that? Why do you not just command it? Just tell us to do it. Don't just assume it, but, but tell us to do it. I think Jesus would respond back to that question of, I, I don't need to command fasting. Because fasting flows from every heart that's hungry for me. Fasting just flows from every heart that is longing for my return. Now, what's interesting is if you look through, uh, let's just say Acts, as a for instance, the book of Acts, this is exactly what happens. If you read through the book of Acts, you'll see prayer and fasting coursing throughout the book. Now, Now, why is that? Why does prayer and fasting show up so often in the book of Acts? The answer to that is because the cry of the early church was, Jesus, bring your kingdom. Jesus, we want you to come back for your bride. This is why you see prayer and fasting so much in the early church. It's that that Aramaic word, Maranatha. Maranatha. It's that word coming out. It's, it's one of those few Aramaic words that the Greek-speaking church j- just kept in Aramaic. They didn't translate it into Greek. And they didn't translate it because everybody knew what it was. It was used so often. It was the cry, the constant cry of the early church. When the early church was doing anything, what you just see bubbling up and out of, your, out of their heart is that cry, Maranatha. Jesus, come back when, when they worship Maranatha. When they took communion, Maranatha. When they, when they faced suffering and persecution, it was that constant cry in their heart for Jesus to come back. It, it's the cry that you see finishing the New Testament. 
If you go all the way to the end of the New Testament, uh, Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, uh, first you have the words of Jesus. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. And then here's the church's response. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. There's that longing. There's that desire for, for Jesus to come back. This is the cry of every Christian. If you want to know, if you want to know what the Bible is trying to produce in your heart, in my heart, in every follower of Jesus' heart, it's that cry. Jesus, come back. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Christian fasting is an expression of that longing heart. It's an expression of that heart longing for the return of Jesus. So, so maybe we can just go ahead and ask now, is that cry in you? Is that longing in you? And one way you can, you can test that is to ask yourself the question, well, is fasting present in my life? Is it there? Fasting is, is one of the tests for that. It's where that longing primarily shows up. Question number three, how does Jesus renew fasting? How does Jesus renew fasting? So Jesus gives a word picture in verses 16 and 17 of Matthew 9. And here's the word picture. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. Okay, so what's happening here? The old garment and the old wineskins represent the way of relating to God that is pre the incarnation of Jesus. So if we're applying it directly to this passage, it would be the old way of fasting, the way of fasting before the incarnation of Jesus. The unshrunk cloth and the new wine represent Jesus in this new reality of, of our groom that's arrived. He is, he's shown up. Jesus, the groom, has incarnated himself and walked among us. So Jesus is saying that this, this old way of fasting can't handle or hold this new reality. It just can't handle and hold the difference that Jesus has made. This new way, uh, there's got to be a new way of fasting to make sense of this new reality. That's Jesus' point here. So, so this old way of fasting, it was an expression of a Messiah that wasn't yet known and wasn't yet here. So, so that's the old way of fasting. It was, it was an expression of a longing for a person that they just, they just didn't yet know. The new way of fasting that Jesus is talking about, is an expression of a Messiah and a longing for a Messiah that we do know and who has been here. Like we've seen Jesus preach and teach. We, we've seen him touch a leper, to heal a paralytic, to die on a cross. We've seen him rise from the dead. We, we've met Jesus and been rescued and saved by Jesus. And Jesus is saying, now after that, you just can't go back to this old way of fasting. Everything about our fasting now has changed. So to put it in an illustration, you could think of it this way. Um, before I, uh, I was married, I longed to be married. I, I wanted to be married. But that longing for marriage was um, a very ambiguous longing, primarily because I didn't know the object of the longing yet. I had never met the object of the longing yet. So, so I desired it, but it was an ambiguous desire. Um, but one day, I jumped on a 15-passenger van, 
Uh, this van was headed to South Bend, Indiana to watch OU play Notre Dame in a football game. And I knew like two people on the van. And uh, we made like stop three, four, five, picked up a crew of guys, six, seven, eight. We picked up 12 guys. Then we made the last stop, and you wouldn't believe the last person in the van. 12 guys and Laura, my future wife. It was her own little version of The Bachelorette, just went down right there. <laughs> and so, now, now think about what, what happens from there. Uh, from there, this, this ambiguous longing over time began to take shape. That that ambiguous longing for marriage was clarified and intensified as I got to know the person I was longing for. And that's Jesus' point with this new way of fasting. This new way of fasting is not based on an ambiguous person we don't know, but long to see. This new way of fasting is built on a real person that we do know and long to see again. That's Jesus' point with this metaphor. Listen to John Piper address this in his book on fasting called A Hunger for God. He says her, he's talking about Israel, her, Israel's hopes, were based on the promises of God, just like ours are. But oh, how much more we have seen, how much more of the Messiah we know and can hope for. She, had, she Israel, had never seen the years of Jesus' compassion and power as we have. She had never heard the words of authority and wisdom and love as we have. She had never seen the blind receive their sight and the lame walk and the lepers cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead raised and the poor evangelized the way Jesus did it. She had never seen him consecrate himself in Gethsemane or crucified for our sakes on Golgotha. She had never heard the merciful words, today you will be with me in paradise, or the triumphant words, it is finished. She has never seen him risen from the dead, triumphant over sin and death and hell, but we have. Our new and stronger hunger for Jesus, which is expressed in fasting, is based on that. But we have. What's new about Christian fasting is that it rests on the finished work of Jesus. That's what's new about it. We fast not in hope of a Redeemer, but in light of a Redeemer. The the decisive moment, the decisive act in in salvation is not in our future. The decisive act was 2,000 years ago. And, And it's that decisive act, Jesus on a cross, risen from the dead, ascended to to the right hand of God the Father, that changes everything about the entirety of our life, including fasting. Jesus, the perfect lamb, was slain. God's punishment for our sin sent down Jesus' life for our life. Death was defeated. Satan was overcome. The Spirit was sent. The way back to God was made clear. The wine is new, and the old mindset of fasting is just no longer adequate. This is Jesus' point here. Jesus is saying, listen, you've seen and you've tasted me. How satisfying to your soul I can be. And once you've tasted it, now there is no going back. Now that informs your future longing. So I want to end by applying this in two ways. Applying it in two ways. It's going to come in the form of two questions. Application number one. Do you long for the return of Jesus? Do you long for the return of Jesus? Maybe I could ask it this way. What is the greatest thing that you can imagine? 
the greatest thing you can imagine. Fasting, its presence or its absence in your life, is linked to your answer to that question. What is the greatest thing that I can imagine? Is it, is it the return of Jesus? Is it this deep, vibrant Maranatha living in your heart? Or is it something else? That the presence or the absence of fasting is linked to and connected to that question. So maybe we could just try to answer that question. Why is fasting, why is it faded in the church today? Why is it, why is it such a neglected practice in the church today? And might it be because we have lost our longing for the return of Jesus? Might it be that we miss Jesus, but we just don't miss Jesus that much? Might that be the reason for our neglect? Fasting, its presence or its absence, confronts us with these sort of questions. Have we we just become so content and satisfied with our lives that we'd rather our lives not be interrupted with something as inconvenient as the return of Jesus? I mean, we, we miss him, but we just don't miss him that much. I love what one author says. He says it this way, the absence of fasting is the measure of our contentment with the absence of Christ. The absence of fasting is the measure of our contentment with the absence of Christ. So just ask yourself the question, do you long for the return of Jesus? Do you long for that? Now, maybe you're like me, and you can see this morning that that your heart, just like mine, is so prone to drift toward worldliness. To just a love of the things here. And you're seeing that. And there's a part of you that, that, that you just know that, that there's a part of your heart that knows you, you want other things much more than you want the return of Jesus. But, but if that's you, that there, there's hope for us if that's you. If you're here this morning and you're saying, God, I know there's other things that I want. I, I do miss him, but not that much. But I want to want him more. I want to desire him more than I do. If that's you this morning, there's hope for us. Because fasting not only expresses our longing for Jesus, fasting can also increase our longing for Jesus. It both expresses and can increase our longing for Jesus. Now, just to be clear, fasting can't create longing. Only Jesus can. But Jesus oftentimes uses fasting to increase our longing for him. Listen to John Piper again in his book, The Hunger for God, uh, say it this way. He's asking that question, do you have a hunger for God? I said, just, just consider that. Do you, do you long and hunger for God? Like, is that a burning want in your life? That the greatest thing that you can imagine, that the return of Jesus, do you hunger for God? And then he goes on to say, if we don't feel strong desires for the manifestations of the glory of God, it is not because we have drunk deeply of God and are satisfied. It is because we have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Our soul is so stuffed with small things, and there is no room for the great. God did not create you for this. 
And church, let's just be reminded of this. God did not create your soul to be stuffed with small things. For your soul to be stuffed with God's gifts. Your soul is too vast for that. It's so vast that the only thing that can fill it is God himself. You were not made for this. And then he goes on, I invite you, if this is you this morning though, you, you just, there's no strong feelings from God. There's coldness, there's numbness. If that's you, he says this, I invite you to turn from the dulling effects of food and the dangers of idolatry and to say with some simple fast, this much, this much, oh God, I want you. Do you long for Jesus? If not, let, let's just say with some simple fast, God, I want to want it. I want to want it this much. I'm going to give up these things. God, God, I want to want it. Do you long for Jesus? Question number two. Where do I start? Where do I start? I just want to give you um, two quick words on maybe a place to start in this. Where do I start? Number one is just to encourage you to start slow. I would just encourage everyone in here to take one day, and you can get on a rhythm for that. Maybe you start one day a month. Maybe you start one, one day every two weeks. Maybe it's once a week. I think that would be a really great pattern to get into. One day a week. Go for a 24-hour period. You can go from dinner to dinner. You're just missing two meals. Most of us are going to make it. We're going to survive it. Missing two meals, a, br a, br a breakfast and a lunch. J just th That's a good place to start with that sort of a uh, first step. One 24-hour period, once a week, once every other week. Just a simple way to say this much, oh God, I want you. Now for some in the room, uh, your physical condition is going to limit uh, how you can fast with food. So maybe you pick a food group. Maybe that's a, a way to do it. Or you, you might consider, and this would be healthy for all of us in the room, we can expand it beyond fasting. When the Bible talks about fasting, it's primarily connected to food, but you can more broadly apply it. Uh, you might consider TV. Can you imagine what would happen if you just cut TV out of your life for a month? We would instantly have like nine days back into our life a month. It would be amazing, right? Uh, you, you could consider fasting from TV. You could consider fasting from social media. That would add about 13 days back into our life a month. Maybe it's from spending. That, that, that next purchase, just the thrill and the... the, the exhilaration of that is one of those things that we use to put a lid over our mouth. It, it's a lot like a taco. just makes us feel a lot better for a minute. So, so we, we can fast from those things. And, and listen, each of those things are, are gifts from God. But good gifts from God can still do great damage by dulling our desires for Jesus. And so a simple fast is a way for us to, to reveal what we're medicating and what we're medicating with. So, so just start slow. And again, let me just remind you, fasting is not a way to manipulate God. It's a way for you to get more of God. Start slow. Second thing to say is to start together. To start together. What if you started with a friend? Maybe a spouse? Or better yet, maybe it's your home group, the, the group that you're a part of here? What if just as a group, your, your home group, you just said that one day every month we're going to fast leading up into our group meeting. Just a dinner-to-dinner -dinner moment where we're going to forego food for the sake of feasting on Jesus. Then when we get together, we can break our fast together. We can share what the Lord is teaching us. I mean, that, that would be a rich, good thing for your group. And, and fasting communally does not contradict Matthew 6, 16. 
There is a big difference between fasting to be seen and being seen fasting. One is for God, one is for the eyes of other people. So, so start slow and start together. And I want to finish with this um, sentence by Charles Spurgeon, a pastor in London about a century ago. He said this, Our seasons of fasting and prayer at the tabernacle, that was the name of his church, our seasons of fasting and prayer at the tabernacle have been high days indeed. Never has heaven's gates stood wider. Never have our hearts been nearer the central glory. Getting near the glory of God. What, What could we need more than that today? What could we need more every day of our life than than for God to make himself real to us? That there is no no greater need. So so church, can we with some simple fast say, God, I want to want that. More than anything else in the world, I want to want you, oh God. So, So can we with some simple fast say to God, this is how much, oh God. This is how much I want you. Will you pray with me? And I want to give you just a moment for the Spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful, to wipe away the things that wouldn't be this morning. Do you long for Jesus? Is your heart hungry for the return of Jesus? If not, this is a wonderful morning to bring that to Jesus. He won't shame you. He won't make fun of you. But just right there in your honesty before God, he'll love you. He'll help you. Do you long for Jesus? For many of us, that longing is going to be expressed as we begin to take steps toward fasting. But for others in the room, that first step of longing for Jesus requires faith now. It it requires for the first time us taking that decisive move toward Jesus where we turn from all the sin that we know disqualifies us before God. And we turn from all the good things in our life that somehow we have convinced ourselves that that those good things qualify us before God. For for many in the room, our first step, that, that, that longing is turning from what we know disqualifies us from what we believe qualifies us, we just give up on ourselves and we throw ourselves upon the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. For some of us, that's the step this morning. We, we need to take that decisive step. This is what the Bible calls belief or faith, giving up on ourselves and our good works and banking on the good work of Jesus on our behalf. So if that's you, just there where you are, you can communicate that to God. 
So, oh God, would you meet us now? Would you help us? God, would you plant a desire in us for you? God, more than anything else in the world, Father, I pray that we could honestly answer, we want the return of Jesus. So, oh God, help us. Help us. It's in your good name that we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.